You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. Welcome back to your asylum from the insanity here at the conservative conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, here at Conservative Review on Westwood One Podcast Network to start off a new week of excitement. And uh, it is Monday. And it is October 29th, and that means we are just one week away from Election Day. Typically, this week is very anticlimactic, particularly the last couple of days before the election, until all hell breaks loose in the final days, and then uh, things pick up. So I usually look forward to this time of the cycle, just you know, resting a little bit from the pace of work we have. But of course, there's different plans when uh, the pipe bomber on Friday becomes so such a dustbin of history in just one day because of the terrible tragedy that happened in Pittsburgh. You know, I am really tired, not because I didn't sleep on my beautiful purple mattress that you should all have and go to purple.com. I slept well on it, but because I was up really late last night traveling. So last night, I was traveling back from New York City where I actually attended a really meaningful ceremony, really meaningful celebration the 80th anniversary of a synagogue that was founded in 1938 by Jews, German Jews that were fleeing Kristallnacht right before the Holocaust. Um, you know, obviously, most many Jews came from Germany in the 1850s before the Civil War. Others came from farther east in Europe uh, in the 1880s, 1890s, and then all the way through 1920. And these were those who escaped literally at the skin of their teeth right before um, right before the hell and the doom of, of Hitler and the Nazis. And, you know, typically, I don't bring my faith much into my politics other than to speak about generally shared biblical values and we talk about the Bible sometimes. We talk about values. But today, I'm not just going to speak as an American and a, and, and a conservative constitutionalist, but I'm going to speak about my Jewish faith to tie into just what's going on and um, the parts that shouldn't be political, the parts that are unfortunately becoming political but still shouldn't be political, and then the parts that inevitably are political and policy-driven that we always want to discuss in a rational and respectful way, the policy solutions that are rooted in truth. So, you know, this ceremony just really, it it, it gripped me in many ways because obviously, you know, I was thinking about all those Jews throughout the world, even today, 
that are in, in dire straits, particularly those in places like France that, that can't practice their religion openly, but they now have places to go. And obviously you got the state of Israel, they have they have where to go there. And you know, back in those days there really weren't too many places to go. And America was really the only asylum for Jews. And as we've spoken about contrasting the bogus asylum and the invasion we're seeing, that's really what asylum was created for. You know, persecuted religious or ethnic minorities that were fleeing tyranny at the hands of a majority or a government. That's why we had asylum, and that's where it worked for us. And one other important factor here, um, this synagogue celebrating its 80th anniversary, why was I there? My brother happens to be is a rabbi, and he is the pastor of this synagogue, and he was being honored for the first time there in conjunction with this uh, 80th anniversary. So, uh, you know, I couldn't miss this event, obviously, and, um, you know, this was planned for a long time. Got back very late last night. But I've been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of thinking about what's been going on. And one other piece of information that's just interesting on a personal level is that my parents spent a good amount of time. They lived in the 70s before they moved to Maryland, where I was born, they lived in Squirrel Hill, that neighborhood in Pittsburgh, um, right right around that area. And my aunt and my cousins are still living there. I'll get to that in a minute. So uh, obviously, you know, this really hits home, this attack. And as I've always said when these things happen, there should be nothing political about genocide. Obviously, you could get to a policy angle, what's redressable, what do you do in the future? But right off the bat, when evil is perpetrated, whether it's in a church in South Carolina, the church in Texas from two years ago, or in this case, the synagogue in Pittsburgh, there's only one person to blame, and that's the perpetrator, or anyone else who's gleeful about people getting killed in the attack. And that's an awfully small number of people. Okay, that's really that really is a small number of people. And all of us in that regard should be on the same side. There should be nothing um, divisive about that. And yet, unfortunately, we live in a time, you know, it was, it was once obvious that you had this demarcation between the sections in a newspaper. You had sports, you had politics, you had weather classified. Now it's all politics. There's nothing, whether it's a weather event, whether it's sports, there's nothing that is not politicized, and that includes tragedies. One of the things we pride ourselves with here is that in long form, with a lot of rational arguments, data, information, history, we make the strong and passionate case for our public policy views. The veracity of any public policy view should be able to stand or fall on its own merits. You shouldn't need to wrap yourself wrap yourself up in the tapestries of tragedy in order to promote your given view. 
and certainly not to shut down debate on opponents. But sadly, that's, that, that, that's what's happening here. So, you know, the first thing obviously is just from a religious standpoint. You know, this is the million-dollar question that we'll never understand until God plants his feet on the Mount of Olives and reveals himself until the end of times. You know, why do innocent people suffer? Why do the wicked get away with everything seemingly in this world? You know, as we say in Psalms chapter 10, O Lord, why do you stand from afar? Why do you hide in times of distress? With the haughtiness of the wicked man, he pursues the poor man. They are caught in the plots that they have devised, for the wicked man boasts about the desire of his soul. And the robber congratulates himself for having blasphemed the Lord. A wicked man at the height of his anger, quote, he will not seek. There is no God, say all his thoughts. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are far removed from him. All his adversaries, he blows at them. He says to himself, I will not fail. I will not fall for all the generations. I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of oaths and deceits and guile. Under his tongue is is mischief and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In hidden places, he slays the innocent. His eyes spy on your army. He lurks in a hidden place like a lion in his den. He lurks to seize a poor man. He seizes a poor man when he draws his net. He crouches, he bows down, and an army of broken people shall fall by his signals. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He never sees. Arise, O Lord God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. Why did a wicked man blaspheme God? He said in his heart that you do not seek. You saw, for you look at mischief and provocation to give with your power. Upon you, your army leaves its burden. You would help the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked. But as for the evil one, you will seek his wickedness and not find it. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations perish from his land. You shall hear the desire of the humble, O Lord. May you prepare their heart. May your heart hearken. May your, may your ear hearken to judge the orphan and the crushed one, that he no longer continue to break the weak from the earth. And I think that's all we can say. There, there's nothing to say. You know, other than the fact that God has this worked out, like all the tragedies, all the mass shootings, all the, you know, terrorism, whatever it is, that he lives forever. This world is but a blip on the map. And um, much like an ant is two-dimensional and cannot comprehend what a three-dimensional being is, we as three-dimensional creatures couldn't comprehend this, uh, so to speak, fourth dimension of what the end of times will will look like and reveal to us. And we just have to have that faith. And, and it's certainly that that's a tough pill to swallow if you are a victim and, and lose family due to just incomprehensible, senseless hatred and murder. But all, all we're left with is, and Aaron was silent, when Aaron just uh, didn't have anything to say, when on the you know celebration of the sanctuary, God uh, took his two older sons from him two oldest sons, and uh, he, he was quiet. He just had nothing to say. And that's all we can do. You can't point the accusing finger at God. You can't point it at your fellow man other than the guy that that did it. That part, right, I mean, that that portion of it should not be um, that, 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 that should not be political. And even if someone's an atheist, they don't believe in God, it also shouldn't be political. There, there, there's nothing to politicize over that. But unfortunately, 
because of technology. And really, I think, you know, as I said on Friday's show with the pipe bomber, we cannot ignore the fact that technology plays such a role in this. And I don't know what you do about it. I'm just, you know, saying everyone's looking for the culprit of the civil war and polarization and everything. Where is this coming from? I think it's pretty obvious, this technology, that, that you're always in each other's face. One day's news cycle is like six months worth of saturation of news from yesteryear. Um, there's endless forums for people just to kind of spew stuff and endless ways people's people who are already predispositioned to go insane to uh, stoke their insanity. I don't know what you do about that. I mean, that, that that's in general a problem. But we can't uninvent this stuff at this point. So we'll we'll discuss about what we do and what we don't do. But you know, I'm I'm a big solutions guy. I'm always thinking of you know what do we do? What do we do? A lot of people always email you know what do we do about this strategy policy? You know we we have to recognize there are certain things, and this is the million dollar question in the world: the wicked prospering and the and the and the good um, being afflicted. That is, th- there is no solution. It's uh you know we have to wait until the end of times for that. Um, we don't live in a utopia on this land. This is not the Garden of Eden. But what we can do is pursue truth and justice. And you know, j- just to get a sense of what's coming, you know, from this great divide in the country, I'll just you know, kind of play it out on a personal level, so you see where. Well, we're we're already seeing this, and we're going to continue to see this all week because they're not going to let this go. So my aunt, who obviously lives literally a, a half a block away, and it's actually um the guy who is going to do that circumcision service goes to her synagogue. It's about a, about a mile away. Um, that's an Orthodox synagogue. Obviously, my my family is in the biblical tradition. This was a. Uh, conservative synagogue, which doesn't mean politically conservative. It's um, It got its origin because reform broke away in during the Enlightenment in Central Europe, 1700s, 1600s. And then in the 1800s in America, a group broke away from reform and just moved slightly to the right, um, much closer to reform than Orthodox, but they call themselves conservative. And recent years, recent uh, times, they've kind of Morphed. It's it's very hard to tell a difference between conservative and reform. Although you know it depends on the um, location and the city and the community. But anyway, um, the guy who was going to perform the service was an Orthodox guy, and he comes running in and he he tells them all about it because uh, they didn't they didn't know. Um, ironically, you know uh, the you know traditional Jews don't do any social media, any, you know, computers on Saturday. So they wouldn't have even known unless at that point it could be, they heard all the sirens, but the guy just told them everything. Cause I think it was scheduled a few hours later and it could be, he was walking there and he just, you know, he couldn't get there. And then he, you know, found the cops and that was it. And he turned back. So that's how close it was, uh, to my aunt. So she has a first cousin who is also my mother's first cousin. This is my mother's sister living there in Squirrel Hill. And, you know, this guy, his name is Jay, calls up, I guess, to inquire how she's doing, you know, heard about the thing, and then immediately starts launching into, this is Trump's fault. 
And, you know, obviously the raw emotion of living in that community then and going through what happened that Saturday. Also, my aunt in general is just very paranoid. She she never goes outside her home. And, uh, you know, she actually went uh, she went to synagogue this Saturday. She's like, this is what happens the one time I go out, you know. So she, she was, you know, not in the mood of this. And she just unloaded on, on um, her cousin, just, you know, just totally gave it to him. And, you know, sadly, you know, this is, you know, dividing families, but this divide, you know, it's very much um, the cousin is a, you know, secular, maybe reform type of liberal Jew. And my aunt is religious and, uh, you know, conservative politically. And this is this is the divide, you know, playing out. And, you know, you're going to see this and you're going to see not just the liberal media, but again, because um, this happened in a, um, you know, progressive oriented synagogue or, you know, a network of synagogues that tend to be progressive or the majority of people are like that. You're going to have all these Jewish organizations, these liberal organizations come out, politicize it. Trump's inciting. It's Trump's fault. Obviously, they're going to promote gun control, um, even though this guy had no criminal record. You know, we, we talked Friday about the fact that most mass murderers have some sort of paper trail, but we said not all. And Lo and behold, the day after I said that, here comes one with no criminal record, no warning sign. No one even knew. No one even heard him just spewing hate. And, uh, you know, he came out of nowhere. He would have passed any background check. There's not a single piece of legislation that could stop that, that would stop that, that even if you passed it, even if we all agreed to it, um, it's not going to happen. But they're going to promote that. They're going to, and, and, and now, they're using this because the guy, you know, online posted some things against immigrants. So therefore, we have to let in the illegal immigrants. We have to have endless migration from the Middle East. Shut up! It's your people doing the hate. You see, this guy um, went and attacked Jews, and he hates immigrants too. And therefore, in the spirit of love, we can't hate. And therefore, it's a Jewish value and it's an American value to have open borders and basically shut down all debate because it's like you're disgracing the um, memory of those killed if you ever take a different position than they do on these public policy issues. that That's basically what is coming. And obviously what you see very prominently today, and I know you guys are going to laugh because this is one of the most sick ironies that I've ever seen in all politics, that they're making George Soros the face of this and saying that um, anyone, uh, this guy, uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, and we're going to talk about this more from the ADL, the – Anti-Defamation League, a group that we uh, endearingly refer to as the Arab Defense League, they, they he came out and said, uh, you know, this this stuff, the buzzword of evoking George Soros is what stokes anti-Semitism in the country. And um, obviously, the ADL gets a tremendous amount of money from Soros, as do all left-wing Jewish organizations, because the irony of George Soros is that. Um, from from the time his parents already, when they were in Hungary uh, pre-World uh, War II, just hated their identity as Jews. They just covered it up. George Soros is the same way, the ultimate self-hating Jew who just you know hates being Jewish. But then he'll fund the so-called Jewish groups if it achieves his ends um, because they'll use them to go and obviously promote – his bidding, and in this case, he is their benefactor. So obviously, Greenblatt and the ADL they're going to go out and and champion George Soros. 
And then people like us that just wanted to mourn what's going on and, you know, leave politics out, we're, we're caught now because now we, we have to respond to that because there's a lot of very dangerous and false and reckless things being said, uh, using a tragedy as a political human shield to promote them. That's very dangerous because, for one, you know, you should never shut down debate on important policy issues by saying you're a hater. Again, the only haters out there are this small group of people, neo-Nazis. Unfortunately, they still exist. There really aren't that many in number, but like we see, it only takes one to, to wreak havoc. And you know, thankfully in America, we're blessed with a population collectively of all sorts of backgrounds that are the most favorable towards Jews of any country. In, in the world now and really any country in the history of of, uh, of the last 2,000 years. And it's something we should be thankful for rather than, you know, going around and saying, hey, this is deeply rooted. This is something that's going around. This is like, a, you know, almost like America is failing Jews. No, you know, America is great. Our law enforcement are great. The cops came there in a, in, in, in a minute. Um, you know, for many years in other countries, the police were used as a tool of the government to persecute Jews. Here, they protect Jews as well as everyone else. And, you know, th- th- this is, this is a, a, again, a, a very tiny group of people. Obviously, if you go online and you look at the dark web, you could find dark ideologies of all bents where, you know, assuming they're not bots, you know, or fake accounts, they're real people. So there are real people that hate out there and there's nothing you can do about that. But to try to, promote victimhood and grievance mongering to begin with, I find very distasteful. You know, I, I detest identity politics. I detest victimhood and I'm not going to use it, um, play, play the Jewish card either, but certainly to do it, to promote a liberal agenda that as we're going to discuss in many ways is not just antithetical to the Bible and the people of the book and my view, the religion that, that, that I practice but it is actually counterintuitive to the security of Jews as well as all Americans. So, you know, first off, I just want to start by pointing out, before I forget, because it's important to realize that America, America is founded as a Christian country. But you see, America wasn't just like any Christian country. Throughout our history, religion in many countries was used as a tool to promote tyranny and to subjugate people, to persecute people. And this was going on for a long time until the Enlightenment. Post-Enlightenment, that it, that really started to change. And obviously in the 20th century, most of the big Genocide from Nazism to Marxism, communism, China, Cambodia was promoted by godless people. But America, from its founding, was always different. America wove together a brand of Judeo-Christian ethos that harnessed the principles of of the entire Enlightenment and the freest principles of English common law, as, as Jefferson always referred to, to eschew the practice of faith as a tool for theocracy 
and use it instead as the foundation for public liberty. As Tocqueville observed, he, he, he had a lot of observations about the religious fabric of, of America, and he said, quote, The Americans combined the notions of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible to make them conceive the one without the other. And with them, this conviction does not spring from the barren, from that barren traditionary faith, which seems to vegetate rather than to live in the soul. Liberty, ra- rather than Christianity used to clamp down on the liberty of those who aren't Christian, it was used to promote liberty. And that's the America we live in today. As Tocqueville said, despotism can do without faith, but liberty cannot. Liberty needs faith. Now, you could have a faith and have tyranny like we saw for you know most of our history before the Enlightenment, but certainly, certainly without it, you're going to have despotism. So it's important to remember in times like this that American Christians and, and, and this civilization that we've built here in America is the most tolerant of all civilizations to Jews. And that's why Jews have prospered in America so much. We, we can't lose sight of that because some godless puke did this. It certainly doesn't reflect that there's a large population of this going on. Again, it only takes a few, and every once in a while, it, it pops, it rears its ugly head. A couple of years ago, we had in Missouri uh, a Jewish community center that was um, shot up by, by again, one of these a similar type of guy, and they are out there. But what I resent is that basically all these left-wing Jewish organizations and left-wing Christian organizations and left-wing secular organizations fanned by the media are basically saying Trump incited this. Somehow this is on conservatism. It's on those who want secure borders, those who want more of a balanced approach to immigration. Somehow it's their fault. Now, let let me just say from the onset that when you have someone who commits murder and then he has some rantings on political issues on his social media pages, you don't drive public policy based on that. For example, if Someone got so enraged by the ethanol mandate, putting garbage, you know, corn in his uh, tank of gas, that he goes and he takes his car, God forbid, and crashes it into an ethanol plant. I'm not going to stop advocating against the ethanol mandate, okay? I mean, we are going to debate that on its own merits. So for those who are saying, shut up. You're not allowed to say we shouldn't bring in the caravan and the, and the broader illegal immigrant invasion and stop calling it an invasion because you're like – just like the, the white supremacist neo-Nazi guy Bowers in, in Pittsburgh. That's utter nonsense because, dude, two people could play the same game. See, what did the guy also write? He also wrote about all the Zionists and the Jews controlling the administration and the pro-Israel stuff in the Trump administration – and I could tell you, if you're going to say, well, for our own separate reasons, 
he might come to certain conclusions that we come to for different reasons on immigration. Well, you guys on the left and George Soros and all your buddies, all your leftists, including Jewish leftists, you're siding with Bowers on the issue of Israel and the BDS movement. And I will say more broadly that if you want to talk about from a policy and cultural standpoint and a redressability standpoint, what is more pervasive in terms of anti-Semitism? Obviously, they have the talking point. Well, look, you know, this guy, white supremacist, it was the, you know, the, the single deadliest, deadly, deadliest attack on Jews in American history. But in terms of a long-term looming strategic threat, if you look at the college campuses, which have become very unfriendly to Jews, a lot of Jewish students could talk about that. That is all due to leftist activism primarily fueled by the BDS movement and similar movements with the Palestinians that are, by the way, very inextricably linked to open border movements. Just a couple of days ago, a couple of us here at CR were, were talking about this, how um, everywhere you look at an open borders rally, the Palestinian flag, the Palestinian cause always comes up. I was talking with Joseph Humeyer, my Latin American advisor here. Um, he's an expert in Latin American affairs, and you see that all the time there. So again, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. But nonetheless, I don't believe that it's an illegitimate view to have. You're allowed to be anti-Israel and make your case. And just because a guy shoots up Jews because he hated the fact that our government is too supportive of Israel doesn't mean that they aren't allowed to make a coherent strategic argument against our you know, favorite favoritism of Israel over Hamas. They could support Hamas if they want. But just understand that Hamas calls for genocide against Jews, and they make it as part of their religion. There is no Christian religion or any other religion that, that does that. right? So don't blame this on whites and Christians and whatever. This is one isolated guy. I don't even know if he ever went to, to any church in his life um, because from a strategic standpoint – and again, I'm not, I'm not dismissing this. I'm not saying I'm not concerned about neo-Nazis. But what I am saying is that from a strategic standpoint, from a redressability standpoint, as a nation, we do everything we can. Nobody condones them. Everyone will do everything to the extent of the law within the confines of the Constitution to monitor them and clamp down on them. We will always seek the death penalty in this case, which, by the way, the left opposes. But you know you're you're not going to find suddenly any of them meeting with uh, I don't know just uh, you know David Duke hanging out in the Pentagon like Anwar Alalaki was holding court in the Pentagon a couple of weeks before his disciples flew to flip flew flew a plane into it. See. The Muslim Brotherhood and the entire network that harbored the 9-11 terrorists and all the other attempted and successful terrorist attacks since 9-11, they are promoted as civil rights leaders by our political class. You have a Democrat uh, congressional nominee who will likely be elected from the Minneapolis area, 5th Congressional District in Minnesota, Ilan Omar, a Somali-born woman who who should never have become a citizen because she did it under fraudulent terms, 
she either for real or fraudulently married her brother. And um, she is an Islamic supremacist. And she hates Jews. Um, Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of Israel. That was a uh, tweet of hers a while back. This woman's going to be elected. You want to talk about what is stoking, you know, look, it's the same thing in Europe. Europe, for sure, you can't deny that there's plenty of neo-Nazis there. But at the end of the day, the predominant factor driving the last 10 years of insane, out-of-control anti-Semitism spreading like wildfire are people like this woman that's about to be elected to Congress. It's the Islamists, and it's the left that harbors them. And it's the right in America, the conservatives, who stand alone in being concerned about that. I want to know how many churches are there in the country, white supremacist churches, where they yell about anti-American slogans and Jews are descendants of apes. Because there's a hell of a lot of that going on in the mosques. Not all of them, but way too many. And mosques that are attended by very prominent Muslim civil rights leaders as well. But yet the Arab Defense League, the ADL is never concerned about them. And I will I will go as far as to say that groups like that are having an awful good time. And I don't care. I will say that. They waited for something like this for years. They're in seventh heaven with this. They don't give a damn about people getting killed because you don't hear it on any other issue. If this would be an Islamic immigrant doing this, which that is a big looming threat I'm going to get to in a minute, not only would they ignore it, they would actually sing Kumbaya and and – viciously tamp down anyone who questions our policies on immigration. They only care because here it fits their narrative. Because, because, And this runs as deep as the freaking Holocaust Museum in, in, in D.C. where they have successfully embedded in the tissue of the culture this notion that, that Nazism is on the right. When the irony is, as someone who has lived their entire life in conservative circles professionally – there has been no home more welcoming to people like me than American conservatives, particularly Christians, Catholic, or any denomination of Protestants. And the reality is that the more conservative someone is, the more pro-Israel they are to the point where you almost cannot win a primary, in a Republican primary for Congress, for president, certainly if you're not pro-Israel. Whereas on the left, funded by George Soros – and all these people and all these groups, even the mainstream Democrats now, you have to be pro-Hamas and pro-Muslim Brotherhood. So don't lecture us about who is stoking anti-Semitism here because you know, I do agree Trump is at fault in one way. One way. He, well, I would say at fault. He's the cause. See, the Trump administration has become such a collection of philo-Semites – from Vice President Mike Pence, from his early days in the House, he was one of the pioneers of pro-Israel conservatism. John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, Nikki, Nikki Haley. That this guy was so enraged by it, and he wrote about it. 
and he hated the Trump administration because of it. So I guess if you're to blame for, for setting him off, I guess, yeah, maybe Trump is to blame because Trump is actually stoking this small, dark group of people because they cannot stand how morally clear this administration is when it comes to Israel, when it comes to combating the BDS movement promoted by Soros and anti-Semitism in Europe and elsewhere. So you know, they, they, they cannot handle that. Which is why they say the administration is run by Zionists and Jews. But that's the thing. To the extent you want to call these people a facet of the right, the irony is the more conservative you get, the more pro-Israel the people are. So don't, you know, the notion that you're going to hang that on us and then somehow say Soros is a victim of anti-Semitism when he is the single biggest disseminator and funder of anti-Semitism in the entire world. Every leftist group, particularly BDS, but then the other open border groups that all tie into that, Black Lives Matter, all the liberation theology groups, all funded by Soros. And I feel there is a need to speak out against this. Again, I wanted to get into the GDP numbers and the important lessons that we should learn about debt and a centrally planned economy, how our economic growth, even at the best job market, is being capped. And you saw that in the sub-numbers of the GDP numbers. I wanted to get into that. I didn't want to talk about this really beyond just mourning it, but the left cannot control themselves, and I'm telling you it's going to get worse because these left-wing Jewish organizations are just going to take this and go all out. That somehow, somehow this is the fault of Trump when in fact, if you, if, if you really want to break this down to its molecular form, here, here's the dirty little irony. Here's the irony. You see, they're, they're going to say, look, this guy, he's the guy who wants to keep out immigrants, yada, yada. But here's the funny thing. What sort of immigrants does he want to bring in? I mean, what sort of immigrants are we bringing in? Among the good immigrants we bring in, we bring in 150 to 170,000 individuals from predominantly Muslim countries on green cards every year. So, I, Well, let me correct that. I shouldn't say bring in 150 to 170,000 people of, from countries of these origins get green cards. So some of them are initially brought here. Some of them are – they were brought here on other visas and it's adjustment of status. And we bring in a similar number every year from these same countries, very much predominantly Saudi Arabia and Turkey, on student visas, which it's not a secret that that's a big part of what's stoking anti-Semitism on college campuses. They're not all like that, but look at any polling from these countries and you will see their views on Jews. Again, you bring in a little bit here and there, you could assimilate them into American culture the same way you could assimilate them into the language, economically, politically. You assimilate them into another American value, and that's the American value, the Judeo-Christian values of respecting 
all religions and certainly the Judeo part of Judeo-Christian. But when you bring in mass numbers like that, 2 million since 9-11, that's just green cards. It doesn't take many to wreak havoc, and that is the lesson. There are very few white supremacists in an organized level in this country. And the few that there are, they're marginalized by everyone. They have no political power. But you see what one person could do. Imagine when you have this many who share these views. I don't need to imagine. Look at Europe. Look at France. Look at what has happened. Look at what has happened. What's the point in bringing in immigrants who ironically share the same views as this guy about Jews, even though this guy doesn't like them either? See, you see what I'm saying? You can't judge based on someone's maniacal thing. So this guy doesn't want anyone in because he's a white supremacist. So he doesn't like anyone who doesn't look like him. Okay? So there's that. But So you'll have people that he doesn't like because they don't look like him. But ironically, they could be brought in and hate Jews just like him. And that, so both things are true at the same time. When was the last time you saw a neo-Nazi rally with 300 people chanting genocidal slogans against Jews? I want to know. You, you don't see that. You see this. It's, it's a quiet thing because our society doesn't tolerate that. And, and also because there really aren't that many of them. I say this as someone who would easily be a target of this. Yet, last December when Trump made made um, the, I, I guess as I'm trying to figure out if this was the decision or he actually – I guess this was the time he made the decision to move the embassy – there was a big I don't want to call it yeah, I mean I guess I guess it was a rally. And there were several hundred, several hundred by what I could see. Looks like predominantly Muslim immigrants, maybe some were converts, but you know, mainly Muslim immigrants, recent arrivals from the massive, massive, massive New York, and speaking of New York, when I was just passing through there, you see the Arabic everywhere. Um, massive uh, Muslim immigrant community. And they were protesting against the move of the Israeli embassy. Now, again, I mean, you're in this country, you have the right to say you don't like Trump's decision. Fine. But I will tell you that, and we'll link to this in show notes, they were sh- chanting intifada. Okay? With spirit and blood will redeem Al-Aqsa. And they were referencing, where is this? I'm just looking at, looking at where this is. They were referencing, I'm just reading, this is from al And this is a Jewish publication. So I'm saying the media refused to cover this. They will not talk about it. Could you imagine if you had hundreds of white supremacists shouting, you know, death to the Jews or or invoking some sort of 
pogrom in Europe against the Jews. So in this case, the, the, the I'm just reading the article, protesters clad in kafiyas and waving Palestinian flags can be seen shouting in Arabic, Kaibar, Kaibar, O Jews, the army of Muhammad is returning. The slogan refers to the 7th century battle fought by the Islamic prophet Muhammad against Jewish tribes and is often invoked by Islamist terrorist groups, including Hamas and Hezbollah. We freaking have that on our shores. So, you know, for years we've been seeing in Europe mass demonstrations whenever Israel kind of blows up in the news and they're like, man, boy, are we happy we don't have this on our shores. Well, you know, since then we brought it to our shores. It's not as bad as Europe, but it's growing. And, and again, there's a lag effect. What do you think is going to happen when more and more as these people feel more and more comfortable in the country to start doing this stuff? But yet we don't hear a word from the media, a word from the Democrats, a word from these Jewish organizations, and instead they um, coddle and, and exalt their leadership. See, that's another problem. Not only do we have a tremendous amount of Islamic immigration, but we have – Already in America, the Muslim Brotherhood that basically runs these communities. So even if someone just wants to kind of come here, live his life, and be fine with it, they're going to indoctrinate them into that because the media and the ADL don't work with people like Zudi Jasser, reformers. They work with the Muslim Brotherhood. So, you know, this is why these people can, can, can go straight to hell. From the ADL. It doesn't give you the right to promote policies. They'll bring in other people that hate Jews, but somehow it's okay because the color of their skin and their country of origin is a little different. So somehow that makes it kosher because they're not white. No. It's the same thing. It's the same problem. But except there's one difference. See, most white supremacists, unfortunately, they're already here. They're they're Americans. You know, there's no way – you can't deport. You can't – until they act violently, you can't apprehend them because there is freedom of speech, and certainly we want to keep it that way. There's no, there's no law against hating Jews, hating whites, hating blacks, hating Hispanics, hating anyone, and certainly we don't want one to be implemented. You know, as, as tough of a pill as, as, as freedom of speech is to swallow, we certainly don't want that. But I t- I'll tell you what we can do. There is no right – to immigrate. And I, I say this all the time. If you had countries that had massive widespread sentiment of beliefs about Jews that you know is a throwback to the blood libels, the Jews control the world stuff, um, you know, that, that type of nonsense. Should we import that? Should we let them in? You know, just you, you had countries that had an overwhelming amount of white supremacists, hated Jews, hated um, whatever, you know, blacks, other people. Should we bring them in? And the answer is absolutely not. I think we should only bring in people who share our shared values. And that's obvious. You know, Theodore Sedgwick said, um, said um, Americans prefer this country because it, it is to be preferred. He said that in the context of the 1790 Naturalization Act. I wrote it in my book, Stolen Sovereignty. And he warned about mass migration. He said, look, you know, 
America is the best place, and we know the world kind of sucks, which is why we got away from it. Immigration is okay, but you got to be careful with it. How much? Because if you bring in too much too quickly, well, you're bringing in everything you got away from. And it's kind of what we talked about on Friday when, you know, I have an article out and we'll link to again today that we brought in so much from Central America that ironically we're bringing in the very violence and the very elements of MS-13 and others that supposedly some of these people are fleeing, and they're really not because violence is down and migration is up, but that's a different story we'll get into later this week in more detail. But my point here is when it comes to violence and asylum, we're bringing the persecution and the persecutors to the asylum, and not only are we harming Americans, we're harming the illegal immigrants too, particularly because they have to live in those neighborhoods. Where's your compassion, your love? Oh, you know, this guy is exclusive. We need to go the opposite and be loving. Well, where's the love of loving the haters? And it's the same thing with Islamic supremacism. If someone has on their social media or they come from areas where in large numbers they believe in this garbage of Islamic supremacism, just like white supremacism, we should not let it into our country. We should not let white supremacists into our country either. But again, I mean, you know, very few of them are seeking entry and most of the ones we have, they're, you know, obviously already American. So there's, sadly, there's little we can do about that until we get to our final point. We'll talk about redressability and what we should do about this. But, um, I, I just want that to be clear here. It doesn't give them a right to silence debate and say, shut up. You see what happened with this white supremacist? Now we need open borders. Well, do you ever think about this thought? America, again, why do we want? We want the prosperity. We want the language. We want our shared values. Well, one of those values is, as we've talked about, built on the principle that Tocqueville observed – America's sense of religious tolerance is a majority Christian nation and the strain of Christianity that America was built upon. So we've amassed in this country a civilization that is by far the most hospitable to Jews in the world. We know, we all agree, all sides understand and have observed that in almost every corner of the world, anti-Semitism is really growing. So we should understand that, well, you know, just like we talk about, you know, when you bring in mass numbers very quickly from impoverished places, you're going to get poverty. When you bring in violence, you're going to get violence. When you bring in Islamic supremacism, you're going to get Islamic supremacism. Well, when you bring in Jew hatred, you're going to get some of that Jew hatred. So for these idiots to say it's a Jewish value – to do this, I can make the argument that more than any other people, American Jews, and I hate – this is why I hate talking that way because I hate the hyphenated stuff. I hate the identity stuff. But again, two people could play this game. American Jews badly need a strong American border, a strong American sovereignty, and a very circumspect and careful and deliberate and balanced, cautious immigration 
no open borders at a, at a, for illegal immigration, and a very careful legal immigration system. We don't want to bring that into our country. Right, this is what we don't want. Oh, I'm tolerant. I love people. Well, well, what if you have people that have hateful views? Like, well, then now what are you going to do? You know, last year, there was a published survey conducted by a German think tank. It was um, published in the Jerusalem Post that more than half of Muslim asylum seekers in Germany showed clear tendencies of an anti-Semitic attitude pattern. When asked by the investigators if Jews have too much influence in the world, 52% of Syrians said yes. 53% of Iraqis agreed with the statement. Nearly 60% of Afghanis said Jews wield too much influence, while a mere 5.4% of those from Eritrea, a Christian-majority country, held anti-Semitic views. Bingo. Interestingly enough, despite the persecution of Christians in Syria— 98% 98% of the refugees from Syria that we've brought in have been Muslim. So again, I mean, you know, you, you look at Pew's numbers on, um, I'll, I'm, I'm going to link to my write-up on this, on support for Sharia or opinion of Jews. Fave on fave, what do you think of Jews? Egypt. favorability, 95% unfave. Jordan, 3% fave, 97% unfave. Lebanon, 2% fave, 98% unfave. Um, Turkey, 6% fave, 73% unfave. Indonesia, 10% fave, 74% unfave. Pakistan, 5% fave, 78% unfavorable. Then you go to Nigeria, which is half and half Muslim and Christian. Among Muslims, 27% fave, 60% unfave. And then among Christians, it's, it's the opposite. And I'll go so far as to say, you know, when you're talking about Latin America as well, and, I, and I, will, I will speak very honestly and openly about this, a thought process that I felt for many years. And, you know, those of you in our Catholic audience could weigh in and email D, me at dhorowitz at crtv.com. Let me know your thoughts. But as you well know, um, the Catholics that you have in, in parts of Europe and Latin America are very different than your American Catholics in Dayton, Ohio, in the Midwest, upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Michigan, because American Catholics, just like American Protestants, have been reared into this culture that Tocqueville described um, intertwining the Judeo-Christian values with liberty. You go to places where you don't have liberty – and again, I mean, the main problem, obviously, with mass migration from Latin America, it's the poverty, it's the public charge, it's the MS-13 violence, it's the drugs, um, it's the cultural stuff, you know, the language. It, it's you know, we we have the right just because other people are going to say hateful things of someone who has different skin color doesn't mean there aren't legitimate arguments not to have open borders and record high immigration for five decades straight. But there is another point. I will point this out. Latin America is very Catholic, but it's Catholic in an interesting way. It's a strain of Catholicism that's built on liberation theology. And let me just say this. I have a – here's the irony. I have a, um, my, a brother-in-law, my wife's brother-in-law, who is uh, from, from the East Coast, but he, he moved to 
one of the border counties in Texas because, ironically, he was an ICE um, a lawyer for ICE, and then he became a uh, in, in, uh, he was promoted to an immigration judge. So there's the irony there. But anyway, his kids went to public school there, and. Now they didn't know what his father did for a living. Um, what what my you know my nieces and nephews what their father does for a living, but there were a number of the kids there. So you know most of the school is is it is uh, Hispanic, um, mainly Mexican, and you know some obviously a mix of illegal and legal. There's no way of knowing, but there were several that went up to them and started with this crap of you guys are Jews, Jews killed Jesus or Jesus, whatever they said. And I'll tell you, that's the type of stuff that they were never exposed to being around almost anyone else. Again, you have to understand that in a lot of third world countries, a throwback to this kind of dark ages mindset, just like a lot of them are in the dark on... uh, you know, combating diseases and healthcare and whatever it is, they're also in the dark on enlightenment. And this whole kind of like suspicious conspiracy theory stuff about Jews, certainly it's in the Islamic world, but even parts of the world that aren't Islamic. And that's why if we've amassed the best combination of a civilization in America that is so good for the Jewish people, as well as everyone else, we really got to be very careful about f- trying to purposely, fundamentally transform that with just added control above normal immigration levels. Got to be very careful. These are important things to say. But again, back to the redressability of immigration. You know, the one time that you actually had an opportunity to get rid of a Nazi who was an immigrant, the media, see, the media won't talk about this, but the big Jew hater, you know, like Trump, a big Jew hater, he hates Jews so much, he has all the philo-Semites in his webs, in his, um, in his administration, and, and look, you know how I feel about Jared and Ivanka, I can't stand their politics, but, what, be it as it may, that, that's besides the point, at the end of the day, they are Jewish, um, and uh, you know what strain of Judaism they practice is not my business, and I don't care. It's not my strain of it, obviously, of biblical Judaism. But you know, Ivanka, in her mind, thought she was converting into that, and you know, it's not like oh, Trump has a daughter that converted and Jewish grandkids, and like okay, he hasn't talked bad about it. He is so, 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 so close with her, much to our chagrin here politically based on our liberal views, but he's very close with her and brought them into the administration. It's pretty scandalous. I mean, I don't care if you detest everything about Trump. I don't agree with everything he does or says, but to accuse him of stoking Jew hatred is just, it, it, it is an imprecation to God. That is so freaking offensive. And it's unacceptable, and that needs to be tan- stamped out. But anyway, one of the things that Trump did was he deported a Nazi guy. I'm going to read you an article 
that I wrote a little while back. This was in August when this happened. The requirement of, quote, good moral character in order to be naturalized as a citizen is as old as our first naturalization laws in 1790 and colonial laws before the founding. The understanding was that although we are stuck with a lot of terrible natural-born Americans, among the many terrific citizens, we should never elect to add new citizens who do not possess good moral character given that immigration is an optional policy. The country only wanted reputable and worthy characters who are, quote, fit for the society into which they were blended, unquote, in the words of Representative Theodore Sedgwick during the crafting of the Naturalization Act of 1790. Yet the only time we fully follow that law and tradition now is in regard to anyone who was drafted into the Nazi forces, not Islamists, MS-13, or the many other violent criminals who remain in our country. Yesterday, ICE announced that it had deported Jaquil Pollage, a 95-year-old Polish immigrant who had been a naturalized citizen for almost 50 years before being deported. He was denaturalized when the Justice Department, with the help of Nazi hunters, discovered that he had served as a guard in a Nazi prison camp in Poland. It took a number of years to find a country willing to accept him, given that his two ancestral homes, Ukraine and Poland, refused to take him in. This week, he was reluctantly accepted by Germany. Now, if I were a liberal making the daily arguments against deportations that I see from the left, I could easily offer the following argument. Pallage was just 18 years old when he was forcibly placed into a prison camp to serve as a guard. He had no choice and was a low-level war criminal. He then came and lived a peaceful life here in America, presumably never committing a crime, and was a citizen for 50 years. Why should we deport him now that he's 95 years old? To be clear, this is not an argument I'm making. But this is the same argument the left is making for those with ties to terrorism, MS-13, or violent criminal aliens who pose a much greater threat to our security than this individual. Yet they have no problem with this case. Obviously, this is a perfect example of law and order being applied despite the harsh application. We passed a good law barring Nazis from immigrating here, and we are willing to apply it even in the harshest of circumstances. That is law and order. So why can't we apply other sanction sections of the Immigration and Nationality Act to those it applies to? Section 212A3E of the INA renders any alien who participated in Nazi persecution inadmissible and deportable. Pallage concealed his identity in 1957 when he applied for citizenship eight years after immigrating here. He claimed to have worked on a farm in Poland. Thus, even though he had been a citizen for 46 years, he was denaturalized in 2003. Pallage was never a threat to this country and certainly isn't today. Nonetheless, everyone is universally cheering this deportation by ICE as an act of justice and the uniform execution of the rule of law through a generally just statute. So how come we have hundreds of thousands of violent criminal aliens in this country who aren't even citizens at all, are currently a threat to society, electively associate with Islamic terror MS-13, and are not deported? How come the left shames ICE every time it tries to deport these individuals? And I go on and on about criminal aliens, MS-13, and those tied to Islamic stuff. All these people, some are citizens already, but... Islamic immigrants that aren't citizens that are going in these mosques and promoting hate. If someone's in this country preaching neo-Nazi stuff and he's an LPR, I believe we should deport him. If they're preaching Islamic supremacism, we should deport them. There is your addressability. And again, this is a looming threat. God forbid it should never happen, but I fear that th this is just a drop in the bucket if you watch what's going on in Europe. 
Again, the reason why I fear it is because they're considered a protected class. Whereas when it comes to a white supremacist, nobody is going to condone it. Nobody is going to cover. Everyone's going to do everything they can to draw attention. But when it comes to these people, what gives me the creeps is that all these groups, from the ADL to the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society that everyone's talking about now, they do everything they can to cover up the truth. In my community here here in uh, Central Maryland, we have one of the largest um, Jewish girls' schools in North America. And I will tell you that a couple months ago, they caught Middle Easterners surveilling the building. I don't know what happened. I don't have any info. Obviously, local law enforcement, the FBI were contacted. This happens all the time. This is a looming threat. And um, you, you don't hear anything about it. That's why I say these people are dancing on the graves of the dead from these left-wing political organizations. You know, you saw this, you know, progressive rabbis come out with statements saying Trump is the cause. Do you know who funded that? It's funded by Alex Soros, George Soros' son, who is doing more than anyone to foment anti-Semitism. Someone's got to call these people out. When, when you don't care when this happens, when this is perpetrated by other groups, when two weeks ago, a Muslim immigrant cab driver was filmed beating an elderly Jew in New York City, and the media just didn't care, that's a problem. And again... We didn't have to let that guy in the country. This Bowers guy, unfortunately, you know, I don't know how long his family's been here, but obviously he was born here. So that's the immigration angle, and we're going to continue talking about that. But I just briefly want to move on to, to guns and security. This is a problem, obviously, a looming threat for all churches and synagogues. Because churches and synagogues, you know, you're going to have white supremacists, you're going to have neo-Nazis, you're going to have Islamic supremacists, you're going to have people who hate religions. It is a big target. So this is, you know, now you are never, ever, ever going to stop people like this. No background check would have stopped this guy. You're never going to take guns off the streets. All you're going to do is prevent good people from carrying guns. Now, in a state like Pennsylvania, good people could carry guns. It's a right-to-carry state. It's a shall-issue state. So my cousin was telling me, so they go to, obviously, the Orthodox synagogue about a mile away, and my, my cousin carries. They carry there, and they have designated people who carry there. And again, I don't get the wrong, you know, wrong impression from what I'm saying here. I'm just saying... We can't stop something like this from getting off the ground. But the best we can do in these situations, there's two things we can do to deter it. And I want you to hear me out here. Again, as I start off the show, this is the question we have for God. We're not going to stop all of this. We cannot stop all of this. But to the extent we could ever deter something like this, as we said on our Friday show, if they have a criminal record, we need to really clamp down on that. There's actually three other things I want to say. One thing, just very quickly, is notice how these little bastards always talk about 
the military-style weapons of the police, the militarization of our police. This is talking point from liberals and libertarians. They're obsessed with that. Well, now you understand why they need to be prepared. See, you know what I always um just admired about the cops is that, you know, and, and this is not to take away from our soldiers, but in the military, usually, no, okay, you're headed in to this and that, and here's the mission. With with cops on the streets, at any moment, you could be called. Something like this could just come up. And th- these guys were there in 60 seconds flat. It's, un- it's something we should all cherish and celebrate um, amidst the horror. Um, and you know, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. It's not like you have intel and you plan a takedown of a Al-Qaeda cell or something, which is volatile enough in a situation. But I mean, here you really don't know what you're getting yourself into. I mean, they need the equipment. So that's number one. We need strong law enforcement. At a local level, it's the job of the local cops, but the local cops deserve the resources. But I will tell you, there's an entire movement, the whole BLM movement, funded by da-da-da-da, George Soros, is for clamping down on them. So that's number one. Number two is, as far as deterrent, I thought of two interesting things. Gun the guy down right away, and the death penalty for real. Now, let me explain. Notice how in Israel, which is ground zero for if you want to target Jews, that's that's the place. And you got you know a lot of Arabs living not just across a certain line, but even in the neighborhoods within Israel. So, I mean, it, 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 you want to talk about a security threat, they've, they've lived it forever. When was the last time you heard 8, 10, 11, 15, 20 people killed in a shooting – in Israel. I don't think I ever remember it. It's usually one or two people at most, sometimes maybe three at most. That's it. Obviously, you have suicide bombings, you have car rammings, there's all sorts of things they do, and a bomb is a bomb, and that could kill a tremendous amount of people. And that's, again, the scary thing about what we saw on Friday. I mean, you know, you talk about gun control, bombs are devastating, and they're so easy to make. Um, you know, and given that we have an open society, it's not like North Korea, it's very hard. I mean, someone could plant a bomb places and you know, it could, it could go off. I mean, and it could, I mean, it's it's that that's really a big threat. But as far as shootings with a rifle or a gun, notice how in Israel you never hear that. Now you know what I'm going to say. Because there's always someone carrying, whether it's a civilian or a soldier or a police security guard, they always get zapped at any moment. They come in, and someone at any side of them could just shoot them dead. And it's hard to prevent a single casualty, but you usually prevent it from really, you know, just going on and on, just shooting fish in a in a barrel. But what happens here when you have these gun-free zones or areas that they know you have a pacifist crowd or they're not they're not going to be carrying guns, they could sit and go and go and go and go and you, you know, oh well, we have to ensure he doesn't get a gun. There's no legislation that will ensure that, even if you don't even even if you don't believe in the Second Amendment, even if you repeal it. Practically, you're not taking them out of the market at this point. Any bad guy who wants to get a gun is going to get them, and certainly the anti-carry laws, what, a guy is going to say, gee, I want to commit mass murder, but gosh, how do I get my gun to the place where I want to commit the murder? I can't carry it. No, it's just the people that want to carry and can't do it aren't going to do it. So in a place like Pennsylvania, in in uh, where my cousin goes on Saturday, so he, he carries and he knows other people carrying. Um. Again, and don't get the wrong idea. I'm just saying I'm not trying to blame anyone here. I'm just saying 
given that this was kind of a progressive type of synagogue, and, and it was also it seems like a just devastating, very elderly crowd. Um, you know, there was really nobody there with 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 a weapon that you know could come out out from behind him or whatever. And um, that that's that's the problem. So you know, this is the the discussion again. Talk about the political divide between you know Episco- Episcopalians and um, Southern Baptists between you know traditional Orthodox Catholics and uh, the liberation theology types, and you know, between uh, biblical Judaism and, and Reform Judaism. You know, with with the the left wing Jews, the discussion is all Trump is Hitler and uh, and gun control and and and, and immigration is awesome, uh, especially when we bring in Islamic supremacists in the entire Latin America. Whereas you know, among our crowd, the discussion really is what do we do in the synagogues to not just have security. Because you know, keep in mind, one security guard is very conspicuous, and in a premeditated attack, he could be taken out. It's that inconspicuously, people strategically located that have, and I know in a lot of churches, they have this already, where you get tactical training, you have designated people that work with the SWAT team. Um, you know, I have worked with uh, one of the Jewish girls' schools here. There is an amazing team of retired Baltimore County SWAT guys that patrol it. And uh, they just love doing it. It's their kind of retired job. And these are really hardcore dudes, real professionals. So every once a year, we have a um, stake and shoot, just go out and have fun with them and uh, have tactical training. And then we have really good stakes, kosher stakes. And anyway, you know, I'm really good with a handgun. Not much of a long gun guy. I'm really good with a handgun. I'm really good at draw shooting split second draw shooting and getting an accurate shot off double taps guess what i cannot carry in my synagogue i cannot carry because i live in this stupid state of maryland where the stupid rhino larry hogan contrary to the expectation of many refused to loosen the interpretation of good and substantial reason to carry I mean, if we're going to play this identity card of Jews and Jews, at least play the identity card that Jews are the most persecuted people. Most of the hate crime attacks are against them. So shouldn't they be able to carry? Again, I don't like special favors. Everyone should be able to carry. But you get what I'm saying. Everyone in a church and a synagogue needs, needs to carry. A mosque too, although I guess they're pretty, pretty safe. Um, especially if they're run by the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, I guess it's probably the safest place to be. But if you're going to be in a synagogue or a church, I mean, it's a huge target. And that's the only thing you can do. Which brings me to my next point, which ties into the death penalty, and then we're going to sew up here. And that is, one of the things I've noticed about neo-Nazis, unlike Islamic supremacists, is they don't really have a culture of suicide, of suicide attacks. Um, Strategically and tactically, suicide attacks are the hardest to deal with because obviously tactically you could put yourself out there in a much better position to seek the maximum devastation if you're not worried about coming coming out alive. And that was always the problem with the suicide bombing. That's what's so devastating about it or any suicide attack. So the problem with Islamist attacks that we fear from is that they literally don't care. And that's that's what's so dangerous. But I think in particular, and I'm not here to tell you that you know we have the ability to stop every neo-Nazi type of attack. But I think actually more than others, I think you could stop that because the 
really don't want to die. You saw it in this case. He surrendered himself despite being in a long shootout. He never took his own life, and then he went and surrendered himself. Um, and this was true with the – geez, I'm forgetting here. Was it Kansas City or St. Louis a couple of years ago, the Jewish Community Center? Um, that guy also, they got him alive. They got him alive. So that tells me they don't want to die. What if they didn't have this blood and guts, you know, guts and glory of being able to kill so many people that if, that if, and God forbid the ensuing shootings in a church and a synagogue, every time the guy was gunned down in the back of his head by someone that he could never have expected and maybe sometimes he doesn't kill anyone. Sometimes he injures a few people. Sometimes maybe he kills one or two people. But he's gunned down. And it's very unglorious in their perverted mind. I think that in itself is a little bit of a deterrent. But let me take this a step further to the death penalty. I saw something stupid put out on Twitter by S.E. Cup, one of these phony conservatives, that, you see, Pennsylvania has the death penalty and it didn't deter him. This is always an argument. Pennsylvania has executed three people in 40 years, and it, it, even those people, it takes what? How, how long does it take? I mean, most death penalty cases, I see the few executions we have, and there's fewer and fewer every year. What I'm seeing is often you read the article, like, oh, and the murder was committed in 1988. I mean, it's no longer like 10 years. It's 20, 30 years it takes to kill him. So, yes. We essentially have no deterrent. Come back to me when we implement the death penalty for every first-degree murder where the evidence is beyond – not a reasonable shadow of doubt. Let's say beyond any shadow of a doubt. Let's, let's have that threshold to cover ourselves there. And they are killed within three months as our founders would have envisioned any due process. Come back to me, bozo about a lack of deterrent. I'd like to see what crime and murder and mass shootings and terrorism looks like after that, particularly with people that don't necessarily want to die because they don't think they're going to die. They don't think they're going to get shot and they don't think, unless they kill a cop, but they, they don't think that they're going to get executed because it doesn't happen. In the states that we have the death penalty, we don't really have it. We don't have it in a single state. No, Daniel, that's crazy. We can't implement that. Fine, well, that's a different argument. But you can't tell me on the one hand, you don't believe in having a swift death penalty. Oh, but it doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work because we essentially don't have it. I really think the death penalty, if it would be a certainty in the culture, that if you commit first-degree murder or especially a mass murder, you will swiftly, like you will be hanging from a tree. See, we should bring back hangings, by the way. Again, I mean, you want to talk about solutions, I'll talk about solutions. Certainly, 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 this is not going to stop at all. But that's the best you can do. Law and order. Be swift on people that have criminal records and, and there's warnings about. That's, that's obvious. Strong resources given to police. All good Americans need to carry, particu particularly in places of worship. And a very swift death penalty after legitimate due process when they committed the murder beyond the shadow of a doubt. And the rest, the rest is all up to God. The rest is that we pray 
that God's feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, like it says in Zechariah. And like it says in Isaiah chapter 2, when the nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, nations shall not lift the sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But of course, that will only occur at the end of the days when people shall say, as it says in Isaiah, come let us go up to the Lord's mount, to the house of the God of Jacob, and let him teach us of his ways. And we will go in his pass, for out of Zion shall the Torah come forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Thank you. God bless you all. May God heal us all. And may we continue to seek truth and justice. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 